but creating an environment where people feel safe. That's what we talk about when we say psychological safety, the ability to be open, the ability to admit your flaws, the ability to make mistakes and learn from them. Because if you don't have that, you people will still make mistakes. People will have not slept very well using the same example once again they'll make an error in judgment and then they will cover it up because they are petrified of someone finding out that they weren't operating at 110 percent right they're petrified of it because this, the environment the culture is not psychologically safe more mistakes will be made money will be lost if you're in an industry where there's kind of elements of safety um you know people could get injured if people are too scared to speak up about you know, these kind of flaws and these problems and, and so on and so forth. So it's about whether you want a culture of stuff being swept under the carpet or whether you want a, a culture of open communication and honesty. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ship It and Sip It. My name is John, and today I'm excited to bring you a very interesting episode all about stress and stress management. My guest is Jay Unwin from Stressonomics. He is a trainer, leader, uh, motivational speaker, and he's got a master's degree in psychology after a bachelor's in biology. And today we dive into all things stress and we move from individual stressors out to team stress, company-wide stress, and then on to the internet and how that affects our stress levels day to day. This show is packed with insights from Jay. We talk about dealing with screen time, setting up good habits when it comes to social media, uh, setting smart resolutions come New Year's, and also building company cultures that are less stressful and more productive and better for your startups. I think you're going to really enjoy this show. Jay brings a ton of great ideas that are practical to the conversation. So as always, this show is made possible by Parallect Venture Studio. We work with founders around the world to turn their beautiful ideas into fantastic apps and products. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and how we do it, check out Parallect.com. And with that out of the way, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Jay Unwin all about stress and stress management. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jay. Thanks for joining our show. It's a real pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here. So I want to start out with uh, a question that will let people learn something straight off the bat. So it is December. It is nearly the shortest, darkest day of the year for those of us who are in the Northern Hemisphere, especially those of us who are north in the Northern Hemisphere. So uh, what are some of your wintertime de-stressor tips? Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that, you know, what you mentioned about it being the shorter days and, and so on is, is quite a big thing for a lot of people in terms of how they're feeling. We hear a lot about this kind of seasonal affective disorder and various things where people are really impacted in terms of their mental health and well-being around the kind of the the, the darker hours and the poorer weather, perhaps. Um, but I think that we're all impacted to a degree, whether or not you can um, say that you have a particular disorder or not isn't isn't necessarily um, relevant because we are all affected just to different degrees. I think I think most of us feel a little bit more uh, ready to hibernate in the winter. And I think it's an evolutionary thing. We're not geared up. We're not evolved. We're not wired to do as much in the winter as we are in, say, the spring or the autumn. That's kind of where, where we're most naturally uh, the most active. And yet 
the world we live in, the society we live in pushes us to be just as productive in the middle of December as it does in March or April. And that doesn't quite jive. So we feel a bit like, feel more stressed because what we feel we should be doing versus what we feel able to do, um, there's a bit of a dissonance there, a, a bit of being pulled in different directions. In terms of um, what I like to do personally uh, to de-stress is very much about trying to maintain some of the things as we go into quite a busy time of year with all the festive stuff going on, try and maintain some of those self-care things that we perhaps have been doing um, throughout the rest of the year uh, when we've been in more of a routine. Um, Things like our exercise, journaling, meditation, whatever it happens to be that we do, trying to maintain those things. But much more simply, trying to just do some stuff that brings us joy. There's so much cool stuff going on in the winter. There's so much kind of... um, uh, community things in in the towns, the cities, the villages we live in. There's family stuff. There's all kinds of little bits and pieces that we can take some some joy in if we let go of the you know the the stressors. What do we buy people for gifts, and how do we manage the family dynamics at the get together? And just actually let go of the things that we can't control and get back to the little things that we can control. And do you know what? I'm going to make the most of this situation. I'm going to make the most of this gathering. I'm going to go and watch the local festive lights being switched on. I'm going to just taking a little bit of joy, taking a little bit of joy in these small things that we've got around us, I think is arguably one of the most simple and one, one of the most effective things we can do at this time of year. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, I see a lot of times like the health, fitness gurus on, on Twitter and LinkedIn, they'll talk about, you know, feel great if you get outside and get the morning sun. Well, you know, four days out of five, there isn't morning sun. And if there is, it's not until 1130 in the morning. So, you know, it doesn't seem real practical, but your advice is is quite practical and something that we can do. So uh, today, we're talking all about stress. And when I was thinking about this conversation, I figured it would be logical to treat this whole topic like a big juicy onion and we'll move in layers from the individual and personal out to sort of the startup teams, the smaller teams that we're used to working in here at Parallect, out to a wider company perspective. And then of course, out to the internet and um, our relationship with stress there. So uh, let's dive into the personal uh, layer first. You have been working and helping folks in this sort of personal well-being space for around a decade, according to LinkedIn. Sort of started out in fitness, moved into more of the stress psychological, stress management area. So uh, share as much as you'd like about that journey. I'm really interested in, in all of it. Uh, but my question here is what changes have you noticed over that decade in terms of individual stressors? What is stressing people out now that wasn't five or 10 years ago? I think that there's a, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff stays the same despite the fact that our environment changes a lot. Um, it's a really, really great question to kind of get stuck into, but I'm not sure there's a clear cut answer to it at the end. So I'll kind of discuss around it as much as possible. But, you know, when I when I came into well-being, um, like you said, through kind of fitness, health and fitness industry um, in 2012. So, yeah, about um, 11 years ago now, the um, I was coming in off the back of my previous career as a science teacher 
Um, and that career ended as a result of a prolonged and unmanaged stress load, if you like, um, which resulted in burnout. Because what is burnout other than the end result of a long period of stress? Um, might be It might be intense stress. It might be a lower level of stress over a much more prolonged period of time. But either way, it's without adequate recovery. And it's like the psychological injury that occurs in the same way as if you're under too much physical strain over a prolonged period of time, you will end up becoming physically injured. And so I burned out as a teacher quite quickly. I lasted less than two years in that career, which I'd thought going into it was going to be my career for life. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, So from a work perspective, back then in 2011, 2012, when that happened, I don't think a huge amount has has changed in terms of what people say stresses them out. The top uh, result when you ask people in any organization pretty much is workload, which is a bit of a catch-all term because it's not really telling you what the problem with the workload is. The assumption is that there's too much work. I, I, I would argue that perhaps the the reality is that it's too much work for the time available. Um, it's perhaps the wrong kind of work. And when I say too much time, uh, too much work for the time available, I mean that the person's time is taken up by things which are less meaningful, that kind of busy work, meetings taking up time which didn't need to be there, um, or not having the right resources available. You know, you've got this job to do, you've got this role to do, you've got a certain project that you're working on, but you don't have the adequate resources, whether that's time or whether it's, um, uh, you know, enough of a team working with you, whether it's uh, electronic resources, digital resources, whether it's physical resources. And so workload actually can be split into a number of different things. So although I think that the similarity is that at work, most people would say, Um, workload. I think that what that entails these days is very different. In the past three years, obviously, we've seen a big shift into remote and hybrid work. So maybe there's an issue around resources that are available for those working remotely, resources that are available for those working in a hybrid role. Um, There may be more digital meetings, Zoom meetings, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, Very very, it's very quick and very easy to drag everyone into a meeting now, whereas when it was in person, it was harder to get people all together in one room, whereas now it's like, oh, can you just jump on this meeting for a few minutes, when that person didn't even really need to be there. And so despite the fact that maybe people have saved time in terms of their commute and, and that kind of stress and that kind of time uh, time sponge, the time sponge of digital meetings has increased. So I think that workload is still the overall catch-all term in terms of what the biggest stresses are and that hasn't changed but I think what that entails has changed. Now outside work I think that if we look at um, finances has, is now and has always been a big stress for a lot of people, financial stress. Um, I think that health anxieties and worries about our own health, I think worries about our relationships and uh, whether that's romantic relationships, whether it's relationships with our kids, relationships with our friends, uh, relationships with extended family, that's always been a source of stress. Um, I think that I think that humans and what stresses us out hasn't changed all that dramatically, despite the big changes in the landscape that we operate within. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess personally, I've noticed that uh, just more of my time and more of my attention gets sucked online. Uh, mm. And that's been a gradual change over, uh, let's stick with the same time period, the last 10 years or so. 
Uh, part of that is because my career changed and I started working online uh, predominantly. And part of that is just sort of cultural. As you say, in the last three years, uh, I've been working from home more. Um, what do you see as the risks of being too online, uh, I guess, in general? And are, is there any advice that you have for people to sort of figure out what that threshold might be without sort of experiencing burnout or, or some of the bigger negative consequences of it? I, th I think that it's a it's a tricky one because of course so much of what we what we need to do in everyday life even take banking as an example banking used to be the case if you would walk into a bank and do your banking then there was telephone banking which not everyone really used I never really used it it was really clunky and difficult to do and then when everything moved online and um, you know banking became done through apps and websites and so on we we don't have the option because the bank branches close and we we have to do it online now it's a necessity and so there is there's been a, a a forced shift somewhat but then there's also the side where we spend a lot of time socializing online and i don't think necessarily that i spend more time now than i did 10 years ago i think the apps that i use are different and i think the websites that i use are different but i don't think that necessarily i spend more or less time i remember being at university in the kind of mid noughties when facebook first started knocking around and that was specifically at the time just for university students i remember when it first came out you had to have a university email address in order to uh, to sign up it was just for networking between universities and obviously it grew into something that was way, 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 way bigger than that. So I think signing up in, I don't know, 2006, 2007, prior to that was MySpace. I remember spending a huge amount of time on MySpace in my late teens. Um, and, and a lot of bands, obviously, a lot of musicians got really big off the back of MySpace and things like that. So then you came into Facebook. And then after Facebook, you had things like Instagram and stuff like that. LinkedIn is even older than Facebook is, but um, obviously it's a very different vibe. I think that I spend, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn for work. I still spend a fair bit of time on Instagram for um, discovering music and looking at um, tattoo artists and various things that I'm interested in. Try and use it for work, try and justify it by saying that I'm there because I've got my work on there as well. I don't get any business through Instagram. I'm just there for the reels and the music and stuff. So I don't think I, I don't think that necessarily... Um, everyone is spending more time than they were 10 years ago. I think that I think that maybe we're spending um, a different amount of time on different things than perhaps we were at that period. And like you said, if we've had individual changes in the, the work that we do and so on. Um, I think that the risk, and this is something which has been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic and that whole shift away from in-person connection. The, the idea of social networking... Um, and the reason I kind of hone in on social networks is because that's where a lot of people spend a lot of time and there's a certain element of addiction around that or addictive behaviors, at least behaviors, which are kind of akin to addictions, whether it's a, an actual addiction or not for everyone, you know, that's, that's up for debate, but there are addictive behavior patterns and um, social media was there to connect people. Right. And for a long time, it was there um, as an addition. It was there as an appendix to everyday life where you would go out and you would see people in person, you would see people at work, you would go and see your friends. Um, and then social media was a way of keeping in touch with them when you weren't seeing them in person. You could see people's holiday photos and so on and so forth. 
Then when the pandemic kind of came around, we couldn't see people in person because of the um, the lockdowns and the social distancing and all of these things, businesses being closed. And um, it was a great surrogate at that time in the sense that if we didn't have that, we would have been way more isolated, way more isolated. And I think at this point, it's worth understanding that social isolation versus social integration is one of the biggest predictors of all-cause mortality um, in any population. So, and when I say all-cause mortality, I literally mean just dying young, dying younger than the life expectancy in your in your area for your demographic. And And if you look at that, if you look at the data around that and the statistics around that, it your level of social interaction is a bigger prediction than your um, whether you smoke or not, the whether, how much alcohol you drink, how physically active or inactive you are, your body composition and weight. All of these things pale in comparison to social connection as a predictor of all-cause mortality. Now, the mechanism by which that occurs, I believe, is to do with stress, because I believe that connection and social integration is one of the best stress relievers we can possibly have, despite the fact that relationships can be sources of stress, as I mentioned earlier on. Now, the the thing with connecting online and using social media, social networks, is that you're looking at a great breadth of connection through the internet, but not very much depth of connection. And when you look at... Um, what type of connection benefits us most in terms of our well-being, in terms of our mental health, in terms of our physical health. It's depth of connection, not breadth of connection. We want deeper, more meaningful connections, not more connections. And the danger with relying on the internet for connection and for communication, whether that's work or personal, is that we are not getting the depth of connection that we need in order to stay mentally or physically uh, healthy, extend our lifespan and also our health span. So the number of years that we live in good health as well. So I think the danger really is that there's huge benefits to to connection online and there's huge benefits to the internet. I'm not someone who thinks you should completely unplug. I think that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I think that understanding that making time um, investing time and energy because it does require energy and effort to nurture your relationships. It's, it's they're like plants. You've got to look after them. Otherwise they die. Um, and it does take effort and it does take time. But if we do that, the, the, the payoff is huge. And I don't just mean the long-term payoff of having a longer, healthier life. I mean, the short-term payoff of actually, do you know what? It's, it's lush spending time with friends. Do you know what I mean? Like we forget this, but actually getting in a room with people and having a laugh and doing whatever it is that we enjoy to do, whether it's, you know, listening to music or watching movies or just having a drink and a laugh and telling jokes and telling stories and having a catch up. We come away from that feeling really good. We come away from that feeling enriched, but we don't usually come away from engaging online feeling better. We don't usually log off Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn feeling like we have somehow replenished those social stores you know we don't have that same response yeah that's interesting let's let's stick with social media a little bit more because i had this idea connecting to your fitness background and when we look at sports players they sort of almost all of them at a high level they will have some sort of off season mm. right where they they need that time to prepare mentally and physically so they can come back the next season and, and perform very well um, not all of us are 
performing professionally on the internet, on social media, but some of us are. I mean, it's part of how I grow this podcast. It's how you grow your business and, and find people to talk to with your talks. So is there a case to be made for this sort of off-season from the internet? And what I hear from people when they talk about growing their their network, growing followers, it's you got to post you know, three times a week on LinkedIn. If you don't do that, you're going to lose engagement. Uh, same with Twitter, even more probably. So uh, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, is it okay to take a break? Should we take a break? Should we just schedule everything so that it doesn't look like we took a break? What are your thoughts there? There's, ev <laughs> there's so many people on every platform who will tell you something different as to the way things should be done. And I think that the, the word should is a very, uh, a very tricky one because everyone's got an opinion, right, of what is the best practice of these things. Um, my, my thoughts around using kind of athletics and sport as a as an analogy for this is, is you know I'm I'm for that I think that it's a good analogy and I use the analogy a lot in various ways because I you know for five years of working in well-being I was focused around physical fitness and so I think there are a lot of parallels of course our mental well-being is different but I think that the I think that sometimes it is a mistake to separate them out anyway because this idea of here's mental and here's physical is a bit Cartesian, you know, mind-body duality has been thrown out hundred like over the kind of past hundreds of years uh, since René Descartes. It's like the the idea that they're two separate entities is is not really accepted um, given the evidence that we have. One is intrinsically linked to the other. Um, you could argue, in, if you're a lot of people, I'm doing my master's in psychology at the moment, so apologies if I go off on a, on a rambling tangent here, but a lot of people um, these days consider the mind to be a uh, something which arises from our the physical entity of our brain, right? So the mind is essentially uh, the kind of the software that is running within the hardware of our brain. Some people believe that it's the other way around. Some people have a more kind of this kind of idea that we're spiritual beings which inhabit this physical body. Whatever it happens to be that your beliefs are, one is intrinsically linked with the other. And so to separate them out and say this is mental and this is physical, I think is is perhaps doing it an injustice because it's a lot more complex than that. I understand that we need to simplify things so that people can act on them. But a lot of the things which benefit our mental health, our mental well-being are the same things which benefit our physical well-being anyway like social connection, like eating well, like having regular physical activity and so on. So um, I, I think that I think that using those analogies and using the analogies of sport and athletes um, works because of that, because of that combined nature of these things. Now, I, I also think it's worth noting that not all of us want to be Olympic level, to use the same analogy again, at whatever it is that we do um some of us are quite happy myself included operating you know playing our sport at a county level or a state level you know like i don't want to be the best in the world i have absolutely no interest in being the best in the world because what happens if you're the best in the world at whatever your work is um is that other stuff has to be sacrificed which is cool if you're happy to do that if you want to be you know, the, the biggest, best tech company in the world in your whatever your niche is, amazing, go for it. If you want to be the best startup founder um, on the planet, great, go for it. But you have to make sacrifices. And if you're okay with those sacrifices, 
Awesome. If you're not okay with those sacrifices, maybe that's not the path to go down. Not everyone has to be the best at everything. I'm quite happy being the best at being me. Um, maybe it sound, makes me sound like a hippie, but you know what? My life is more than just my work. My life is, is a lot of different things. My life is also contrary to what a lot of parents say, more than just my family. Love my kids to bits. Yes, they are the most important thing in my life, but there are other important things as well. And none of them surpass my kids, but my, my, my kids aren't 100% of the picture. I'm also a human being in my own right. I have my own interests. I have my own goals, right? And I think that for me, that's a healthy place to be and that's the balanced place to be. So I think that the first thing we need to do is understand what level um, we want to play our game at I think that's the first thing. Um, and then the way we structure off seasons or recovery time is going to be different. So for me, um, I schedule recovery time daily because I think that that's important. You can't be always on 100% of the time. I think that we need to have regular like small bits of downtime um, every single day. So my, I used to work in the evenings as well as during the days I used to constantly be on social media and messaging people. And, you know, when I was a personal trainer, I was trying to get new clients and I was posting stuff and I was writing content and I still do a lot of that stuff, but I, evenings, I just chill me and my wife watch TV. Once the kids are in bed, watch TV and just chill out and then have a little kind of bedtime routine, um, get to bed by usually like half 10 ish. And we have this nice little, just wind down, and that's our routine. And that's not that if I was just like, no, I need to do more, I need to do more, I need to do more. That's what caused me to burn out as a teacher. And it's what caused me to burn out as a personal trainer. Yes, I've burned out twice, it wasn't the plan. Um, but the second time as a personal trainer was because I didn't have that off season, as you're talking about that recovery time. Um, how we structure that we might not need an off season in the same way as like um, uh, a football player might have, um, you know, three, four months off between seasons where they're kind of Sorry, can I just interrupt you there yeah. with your with your daily sort of wind down thing? Is that something where you and your wife said, OK, the phones are going on a shelf over here. We're not going to scroll like just uh, check out Instagram and look at tattoos. Was that something that was a specific decision or do you just, you know, use your phone as much as you want? And you're also, you know, in the same room or watching some TV as well. Well, is I think that again, this is this varies from person to person as to what's the right choice. Um, we've done both in the sense that we've had time where it's just like, okay, we'll just phones away. Usually, if we're watching a movie or watching a series that we really want to actually get into, we'll do that. If we're watching like a kind of crappy comedy series that doesn't really require much concentration, we'll spend half the time just sending each other memes on WhatsApp as well, just like sat on two different sofas, just sending each other memes and laughing at stuff that we found. So for us, it's not like, again, it's not about taking what other people do and say, oh, you should put your phones away and spend quality time together because it depends on the person. It depends on the couple. For us, actually sending each other funny stuff and laughing and and, and having a joke around over that is, you know, memes are my love language, right? I love a meme. So uh, I, I want to share that. And we send each other these stupid things. And yeah, sometimes we will put the phones away, but sometimes we won't. And again, I think that this comes down to that idea of should. Should is just a person's opinion. And if someone says, yeah, put your phones away, great. I think that that's good advice. I think that if you're just sat there not communicating in any way every single night and you're not having conversations i think that maybe things are getting in the way and it comes down to this one question and this kind of this this i think you know if nobody if someone doesn't take anything else away from what i've got to say i think it's this point and that is is it having a net positive effect on your quality of life 
or is it having a net negative effect on your quality of life? I think that that's the question that all of this has to come down to. It's it's being able to be reflective enough and self-aware enough to say, the action that I am doing here is having a detrimental effect overall. When you take the kind of, when you add it up and subtract it away and whatever, what's the net? Okay, it's having a net detriment or a net um, positive improvement on your quality of life. Because quality of life is what well-being is, by the way. The definition is to do with health, happiness, and comfort. Whether you look up what well-being is defined as or you look up what uh, quality of life is defined as it's always about health happiness and comfort so they're the same thing so i use quality of life because i feel like well-being has become a bit of a meaningless word so quality of life does it have a positive or a negative impact on your quality of life and then you can then you can assess you can assess and say oh if it's having a net negative effect then maybe i need to change things if it's having a net positive effect then crack on keep going screw what anyone else says you should be doing including me. Like if it's worked for you, keep doing it. Okay. I just thought of another um, question based on that. And I, this has to do with sort of, uh, I guess, time, time scales. And, and, and so if I want to reach in my phone and open, a social, uh, open Twitter and look at something, you know, in that moment, I do, I've done what I wanted. It, it feels good for 10 seconds or whatever. Um, but then, you know, Monday morning, Apple sends me the, the, the time screen time report from, from last week. And it says, you know, you've spent two, three hours on, on your phone every day. And, and at that point, I think, damn, well, two or three hours a day, you know, I could have, you know, I could have taken 30 minutes out of that and done, you know, something healthier, like, I don't know, stretching a bit of quick yoga and, you know, whatever it could cooked a better dinner, you know. So on that Monday morning, when I look back at the whole week in review, it's it gives me a negative feeling that could sort of stress me out. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so the my thoughts on, on that, they, they're kind of two sides to this. One is, uh, the first thought is why are you unhappy with with that screen time? Now, there's a couple of the couple of points uh, within that. Um, are you unhappy because you have things that you wished you'd done last week and you didn't do them because uh, because you realized actually you spent more time on your phone than than you wanted to? And if you'd trim that down, then you could have done those other things, achieved those other things you wanted to do, which would have added more value to your life and again, had a net positive. So it's that question again, is that time spent on your phone net positive or net negative? Um, but then on the other side of it, it's are you just feeling guilty because of what other people's expectations or what society's expectations or what you keep being told you should and shouldn't do with your time? And because you're being told, oh, too much screen time is bad for you. You shouldn't spend so much time on your phone because that makes you a terrible uh, parent or just a terrible human being in general. Then all that's happening is that you're getting sucked into the, the, the bullshit that constantly is thrown our way to make us feel guilty and bad about stuff because if we feel bad if we feel bad about ourselves we're more likely to spend money on things to make us feel better um maybe i'm sounding massively cynical here but um there's a lot of messaging out there which is which is specifically to make us feel a bit shit about ourselves right um now we could argue all day about whether that's right or wrong, whether it's manipulative and the, the the art of persuasion in marketing and all of this kind of thing. But the fact is, it happens, right? And this messaging is out there. 
right? So if you get this report and you go, oh, I feel really bad about that, there are two things you can do. You can either um, say, I'm going to change something. I'm going to go on my phone less this week and I'm going to find something specific I can do to limit that phone time. Not an overall goal of going, okay, I'm going to be on my phone half an hour less each day. But actually, what, how are you going to do that? Are you going to put your phone away at a certain time? Are you going to put it on airplane mode when you're spending time with your kids? Are you going to put it in a drawer somewhere? Are you going to leave it uh, and not look at it in the first kind of, say, hour of waking up, get up at seven, not until you're sat at your desk at eight, then I'll look at my phone. Whatever it happens to be, have a, a specific action, not just a goal of look at my phone less, right? So that's if you actually want to do something less. Now it could be, oh my goodness, I've spent loads of time on Instagram and I've, what have I got from that? I've spent loads of time arguing with strangers on Twitter about um, Elon Musk, I don't know. Uh, seems to be a popular topic to argue about, right? Or politics, I've been arguing about... Um, Democrats versus Republicans or conservatives versus Labour or just arguing with strangers on the internet and actually do you know what that's not adding any value to my life then uninstall the app like get rid of Twitter get rid of um, Instagram get rid of whatever it is that's draining that time that's not adding any value to your life so and a specific actionable thing the other thing that you could do other than saying hey I'm going to reduce my screen time and this is how I'm going to do it is go do you know what I'm not going to let I'm not going to let myself feel guilty just because of what society's telling me I should and shouldn't do with my time. It's my time. I can do what the hell I want. There's two options here. Now, I would argue that a mixture of the two is probably, in some balance, right for everyone. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of spectrum between those two. You might be a bit 30% of one, 70% of the other, or 30, 70 in the other direction. But either way, usually taking a breath, thinking about why am I feeling guilty about this? Have I done anything bad? What's the morality here? Why should I feel shame? What's the morality of spending time on my phone? And whose business is it making me feel like that? So a bit of reflection and a bit of actually going self-acceptance and, self and saying, hey, I'm only human. And this thing is this thing that I've got is very entertaining. And it's full of funny videos. That I, and it's full of information where something comes up and I can, I can Google it and I can find out all this kind of stuff about the Roman Empire, if I want to. My wife went to Rome at the weekend, so I've spent a lot of time reading about the Roman Empire, right? Because I because I went down a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole. Um, it, it's fascinating what we can access, and that's a good thing. So why should we feel guilty about it? It's an entertaining thing. We're only human. We've still got brains that essentially evolved to keep us alive. Um, we haven't changed psychologically in about 30,000 years, right? And our environment has. So give yourself a break for a start. And then if you want to change something, be specific about what it is that you're going to change. Otherwise, it will get to the next Monday morning and you'll feel crap about yourself again. Right on. Great advice. Um, I always thought that the timing, the Monday morning thing always throws me off. It's, yeah, we're already stressed at that point. It. Right. Um, okay. There was one thing that I did want to tie back to what you were saying about the mind-body connection there for yep. a bit. Um, and I just added this onto our outline, so uh, sorry if it catches you off guard. Uh, but there are a lot of, of gadgets now that are starting to measure some sort of health or bi biological data, whether it's heart rate, heart rate variability, and give us a stress score. It can be in the form of like overnight recovery from exercise. Now Aura, I think, is doing a daytime uh, stress score with their rings. Uh, do you view these as sort of useful insights? I know the data accuracy is kind of 
not quite there yet. Uh, but any thoughts there in terms of using a number to tell us how stressed out we are at a given point in time? I think that it can be very useful for some people. Uh, I think that there's a there isn't a, a blanket yes these are good or no these are not good for for everyone because I think it's very context dependent. Um, I'm I'm very much a happy inhabitant of the grey area and the nuance. I'm a very I'm a fanatical fence sitter on a lot of things because I believe that in in the middle is usually where the truth lies and to be kind of polarized in either direction of yes these are a panacea these are amazing these are going to solve every any uh, everything and any problems at all. Um, or going the opposite direction and say, no, they're rubbish, there's no point. I think either of those, you're just becoming a, a, just a, this kind of knee-jerk response to whatever it is that's going on, and we need to have a bit more of an eye on the subtlety and the nuance here, and that always comes down to context. Um, an example of this, I've not used like a whoop band or an aura ring um, with the stress scores, personally. I've used other metrics which have benefited me up to a point and then started having a detrimental effect so again that's that question of uh, is this is there a net positive or a net negative here and the example that um that's most recent for me is tracking my sleep quality uh using um a fitbit that i had a few years ago which tracked things like heart rate variability and it tracked things like your um your oxygen and your breathing rate through the night and stuff like that and then it would give you a sleep score based on um the amount of time you spent in different sleep zones again it's never going to be 100% accurate. At the at first, in the same way as wearing a simple pedometer can make you go, oh my goodness, I am not nearly as active as I thought I would be. I'm getting about 3,000 steps a day. Um, I want to bump that up to 7,000 and a pedometer can help you do that. Um, whereas if you're regularly getting 15,000 steps a day, it's probably there's probably no point wearing a pedometer, right? Or wearing a Fitbit and tracking your steps in that way because all that will happen is you'll go on the day you get 12,000, you'll go, oh, I'm 3,000 under. And it's like, you still did 12,000 steps. I think you need to, yeah, you know, chill. You're good. You're yeah, good. exactly. You're fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, you're still more active than most of the, you know, um, developed world, uh, uh, so-called. Um, the sleep thing for me helped me go, oh, wow, my sleep. Yes, I think I'm going to bed and I'm waking up and I'm getting this kind of eight hours of sleep, but my sleep is not solid. I'm having some trouble with certain things, which are um, perhaps in my routine as I come up to bedtime that are throwing me off and impacting my sleep. So what I did was I tried to do things and learn what would impact my sleep in a positive way. And, and we could see that over the nights. So I'm like, oh, when I do this, I sleep really well. When I do this, I don't sleep very well. Big one was if I'd had a couple of beers in the evening, my sleep quality was absolutely shocking. Just a couple of beers, I'm not a big drinker, made a huge impact. Um, if I had a drink, but it was earlier in the day, much less of an impact. Um, if I drink coffee, little bit of an impact, nowhere near as much as alcohol um, and various things like that, right? That allowed me to make changes which improved my sleep. After a while of having good quality sleep overall, I started finding that um, the data around my sleep was stressing me out to the point where it negatively impacted my sleep, right? So one of the big things that we know impacts sleep is worry, is anxiety. If you're worrying about something that's coming up the next day, you've got a deadline, you've got a project launch, you've got a product launch, you've got something going on, um, you've got a big pitch to investors, you struggle to sleep, right? Because your adrenaline's going and your heart rate's up and so your sleep quality is poor. I was getting that because I was like, oh God, I hope I sleep well tonight. 
I hope I get a good sleep score in the morning. I'm only getting, I only got 88 out of 100 last night. And I want to get above 90 because that gives my weekly average. That keeps my weekly average up. It gamifies it, but then it makes you feel guilty for not maintaining something which is exceptionally high. Once you've hit your peak and you've got a, a personal best and you never hit that personal best again, the, the problem with that is that sometimes then you feel like you're failing. So I found that tracking my sleep at first actually had a net benefit and it helped me improve my sleep. And then after a point, the tracking alone had a negative impact on my sleep. The same will be true of stress scores. If you start stressing about your stress score, is is that worth measuring? Like, yeah, I, and the especially more we because measure stuff, the less self-reflective we are. Yeah, and especially because you, you're getting that score immediately. It's not like the sleep tracking score where you're looking at it the next morning. You can't do anything about it. You know, you look at your watch and you say, oh, shit, I'm stressed out right now. I yeah. should stress out about that. Uh, what, what are you supposed to do? Take yeah. 10 yeah. deep and breaths? It's, or, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. And I think that anyone who's using this stuff, if you're using an aura ring, if you're using a whoop band or anything like that, I think the question has to be, is this having a net benefit or a net detriment? I, I, once again, it will just keep coming back to that. Um, and if it's having a net benefit, brilliant, crack on. If it's having a net negative effect, get rid of it. Stop wearing it. I don't. I don't have no tracker on. I. I at the moment, I'm not saying I never will, but at the moment, I. I don't have a need for one. I don't. I don't feel like it would improve my life. Um, and I think that again, we're sold this idea that they will categorically improve something for us and that's not always the case remember it's the companies that are selling them making them and selling them that are telling us that they are really really good and they're obviously going to say that and i'm not saying they're yeah. being manipulative in a, in a negative way but of course they're going to say that in the same way as i say that stress management training is really important for companies because i genuinely believe that and the people who make this stuff genuinely believe that everyone should be wearing them probably yeah, that's fair. All right. I think that's enough of a deep dive on individual stressors. We, we've gone on and on about it. So let's dive into teamwork. We'll make some of these sections a little bit uh, quicker so that we can get through uh, a lot of the key topics. So uh, you talked about burnout. You've burnt out twice already. Um, I've seen teammates burn out across different industries, not just tech, but others. Um, founders abandon startups for the same reason. Uh, so my question here is, is the stress that causes burnout, do you more often see that coming from the individual or from the organization that the individual is working in? So usually the source of it, a lot of the time is external, because stress is the response to any demand for change, right? Stress is a physiological and psychological response to any demand for change, any adverse uh, circumstances, any challenge, our body and our mind respond to that. So usually the stressors are external, the sources, um, and then stress and the way we res respond is internal. The, the visual that I like to use to explain this to people, I'm a very visual person, is this kind of idea of taps, buckets and valves. So we have one bucket, that is our capacity to cope with and recover from stress. It, you could call it resilience, you could call it fitness, whatever you want to call it, but that's our capacity to cope. You have multiple taps. Each tap represents a stressor. So you could have 
a certain project that's on at work. There could be um, the relationship you have with your manager. There could be your finances. There could be um, a, f- a family member who's in end of life care. There could be your kids. All of these are taps. Those taps flow water into the bucket. That water is the stress, right? So taps are the stressors. Water is the stress. Bucket is your capacity to cope. Burnout is when that bucket overflows, okay? Burnout is when that bucket overflows. You have no capacity left. You have no capacity left. So the goal is to avoid the bucket overflowing. There's a couple of different ways you can do this. One of them is to turn some of the taps off or down. Okay, so the sources of stress, a lot of those might be outside of our control. There may be ones that are directly within our control and we can say, do you know what? That club that I belong to and I'm on the committee for, I'm going to take a step back from, turn that tap off, right? Because I've got too much other stuff on. Um, So we can turn some off, we can turn some down. We might go, okay, that relationship that I've got, that friendship or that family member that really drains me and it's actually more of a stress than a stress release, I'm going to turn that one down. Not off completely, not going to not see them, but I'm going to see them less and it's just temporary, right? There's someone I love even though they're hard work. I'm not not big on cut that toxic person out of your life because, you know, then we're leaving people who potentially need support out on their own. I'm I'm not for that. I'm very much kind of focused on the collective rather than the individual here but we might need to reduce the amount of time that we spend with that person in order to make sure our bucket does not overflow so we can turn some of the taps off we can turn some of the taps down some of them they may be outside of our reach but they're controlled by someone else that we have a a line of communication with like our manager Um, so they might have given us another project on top of the, the project we're already working on and we might say to them hey can we like hold that one can we put a pin in that project until i finish this one because i want to do these projects to the best of my ability and if i'm trying to do both at once they're both going to be not as good so can we do this one first turn the tap off on that one for now and then when this one's done and that taps off let's turn the other one back on and then i can do that one to the best of my ability so direct control then indirect influence now some of them will be completely out of our control some of them will be um you know, we, we might be experiencing a cost of living crisis as a result of the political uh, state of our country. We can't directly control that. We can't really even indirectly control that, even in a democratic way, like not immediately anyway, right? That's kind of long-term stuff. So we need to bring our focus into the taps that we can control or that we can indirectly influence. The other way that we can avoid the bucket overflowing is by using valves to regularly let some of that water out of the bucket. That is your self-care. That is your personal stress management. That's your things like taking breaks, your recovery, your having downtime, your listening to music, your exercise, your seeing friends, all of those things that we do that help relieve stress um, and lower that stress level in the bucket, the self-care type stuff, that's where personal action can come in as well, right? So so if we look at that model and we want to keep the, the level as low as possible, there'll always be water flowing in. We want to keep the level as low as possible so that when a big old tap gets turned on that we were not expecting, for example, a bereavement, a divorce, um, you know, things that we just were not expecting, we've got the capacity in our bucket to absorb that without burning out. So in terms of the team, we've got to understand that actually we are pouring water into other people's buckets. Other people are pouring water into our buckets. There is an interplay in any team, and we need to understand how our behaviors um, impact other people's stress buckets, especially if we're in management or leadership positions, because we are controlling a lot of taps for a lot of people. So I think that it's, it's about understanding that a lot of those 
sources of stress, those stressors, although the responsibility for our own well-being and quality of life does come back to us as individuals and what can we do, um, we do need to understand that none of us are an island and we do impact each other's stress levels at every waking moment and probably sleeping moment as well. Yeah, for sure. And sticking with that leadership note, uh, just in the transition to work from home, you know, a lot of our communication just happens in messengers on either task trackers, Slack, uh, whatever other platform we use uh, within the team. And I think, you know, before, in the before days, you could sort of see how someone was doing in terms of stress when they walked into the office on Monday morning or Tuesday morning, whatever morning it is. Uh, if they're having a rough time, uh, it's often written on their face. Uh, and when we abstract away from that, how, how should leaders sort of, how can leaders keep, keep a handle on that stress? You know, I'm not gonna go to my manager in Slack and say, you know, look, I, the baby slept terribly last night. I'm just having a rough day. But that's something they would pick up on if we were sitting together in the same room in an office, probably. Why do you think that you wouldn't go to your manager and say that? Because it's just, um, I wouldn't lead with that. It wouldn't be like background context to our working relationship for the day. You know what I mean? I do. I, I I'm, I'm interested because often when I have these conversations with teams, whether they're small teams or large teams, the there's often a reason why someone wouldn't open up about something like that and now this is a longer a longer piece because creating the environment where people are open about that stuff in in a kind of remote or hybrid setting um it can take a bit of time because it relies on trust right it relies on having the trust with with your manager to be able to be open about these things um but the reason that i kind of turned that around and, <laughs> and asked you a question back was because most people haven't thought about why they wouldn't talk about that. And a lot of the time they feel like it would have some kind of detrimental impact on their uh, the way they're, they're seen by their manager, for example, and then might have a knock-on impact on their work progression, their professional uh, trajectory, whether they're going to get a promotion. If this person is you know, not sleeping well because they've got a baby at home, maybe we'll pass them up for the promotion and give the promotion to someone else kind of thing. And if we start to unpick it, it's, it's usually the reason that we're scared of opening up about certain things. And it is fear. It is fear which stops us, whether that's you know, the fear of what I've just laid out or a fear of something else. It's usually, oh, I don't want to open up about that because I don't want them to think X, Y, Z about me, right? And if we unpick that, it's usually because of the management style and it's usually because of the culture of the place that we're working or the perceived culture of the place that we're working in, at least how we see it. So it takes time to, to create the culture where people will come in and say, do you know what? Do you know what, boss? I had a rough night's sleep with a baby last night. I've slept about four hours. Um, and and still be able to follow that with a kind of I'm 100% going to do my best today but my best is going to be a lower level than it would be had I had double that amount of sleep right full disclosure I will work to the absolute best of my ability but my ability is going to be different on different days as a result of the circumstances that's that's not a shocker for anyone right we all have a bad night's sleep sometimes for whatever reason that happens to be and our capacity to cope with stress our capacity to do our jobs our performance will be diminished as a result of that not everyone plays a good game every day right 
athletes have good and bad performance days as a result of stuff that's been going on around them. They're not in control of every single thing. They are at the mercy of chance. They're at the mercy of other people's behaviors and decisions. And the more that we can accept that as leaders and say, do you know what? If someone discloses that to me, I'm going to be cool with it. I'm not going to expect them to have the exact same level of performance every day or to have a new personal best every single day. That doesn't happen. And the way that we can start building that is by quite simply asking those questions and being open about those things ourselves as well. There's those two things that we can do. So for example, in the in the context of what you were talking about, if you go into a, a meeting and there's say five of you in the team, your, your, your manager, your direct line manager, and four of you in the, in the team um, underneath, and that person, that manager starts the meeting with, right, how's everyone doing today? Like anyone got anything that they've found challenging either within work, outside of work? How's your stress levels and and creating an environment where you can just go, do you know what? I slept really badly last night because I've got like, you know, a young kid and da 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 da. And people go, oh yeah, actually same. I had that last week. And you know, I've, within a couple of days I felt better again. And, and then you bond over it and you go, oh, I feel understood. It's not just me. So asking the question and giving people that that prompt to actually open up about these things is one thing we can do. And the second thing is if the manager, if the leader can say those things as well and say, you don't have to be 100% vulnerable and share every in and out of every part of your life. It's not about vulnerability in terms of, once again, 100% or nothing. It's about just being a bit open that you're a human being too and you have challenges and go, do you know what? I'm feeling quite stressed about this, um, this product launch we've got. Uh, I'm concerned that, you know, are we going to have it done in time to the standard that I want to have it done at? Because, uh, you know, I, I want it to go really, really well. So I'm trying to manage my stress, manage my expectations, do everything to the best of our ability as a team and work together to get this product launch done to the best standard we absolutely can, but also look after my own stress and kind of do things which I know relieve some of that stress, making time for doing some exercise, making time for this, that and the other. And if the leader can open up about what they're finding challenging and then what they're doing about it, the, the people within the team will start emulating that or they'll feel more comfortable to emulate it. And some people will take longer than others to come on board, but it, it's, it's about trust, it's about rapport, and it's about creating an environment where people feel safe. That's what we talk about when we say psychological safety, the ability to be open, the ability to admit your flaws, the ability to make mistakes and learn from them. Because if you don't have that, you people will still make mistakes. People will have not slept very well using the same example once again, they'll make an error in judgment and then they will cover it up because they are petrified of someone finding out that they weren't operating at 110%, right? They're petrified of it because this, the environment, the culture is not psychologically safe. More mistakes will be made. Money will be lost. If you're in an industry where there's kind of elements of safety, um, you know, people could get injured if people are too scared to speak up about you know, these kind of flaws and these problems and, and so on and so forth. So it's about whether you want a culture of stuff being swept under the carpet or whether you want a, a culture of open communication and honesty. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess if the funny thing is, I, I've noticed this, I guess, culturally, at least where I am now in Eastern Europe, um, people will often start Slack conversations with, hey, how are you? And it's sort of a but it's just a performative thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's a greeting, not an actual question. Yeah, yeah. Like, and then they'll follow it up with their ask, whatever their ask is, whatever yeah. the reason for, for writing to you. Um, and I always found that, like, coming from the US, I was just like, 
I see them typing, right? You see the little notification at the bottom that the person is typing after they've sent this question. I'm like, just lead with the question. Like, what, what, what do you need from me? I'm, happy, I'm here to work with you. Like, that's the whole purpose of this relationship. Um, but yeah, it's, it takes some doing, especially with the work from home stuff. Uh, let's see. On the work you mentioned, from home thing, yeah, just, go, just to jump in yeah. again there. Um, I think that it's important to note as well that sometimes, again, we, we're very quick to say, oh, it's harder to tell when someone's struggling when they're a remote worker. And I agree that that is quite often the case. However, it's also important to understand that um, there is evidence to suggest that people are more willing to open up remotely in some instances because they feel more safe it's the kind of keyboard warrior effect right yeah, yeah. some people are willing to say stuff online that they would not say in person because there's a feeling of safety because there's a screen and a keyboard and that person's not even real right they're not actually in front of me and so sometimes yeah, yeah. people feel a bit more able to open up via slack or via whatsapp or via teams rather than um rather than sat face to face and going oh my god that's an actual human being that i cannot be honest with them so it's important to understand that there are pros and cons to this and and it isn't all good or all bad in any direction um we have communication tools now which yeah we talked about breadth versus depth of connection earlier on but but we do still have them and they are still tools that we can use that if we need to check in with someone and we don't need to start. Yes, we might sometimes use how are you as a greeting. You know, we do it all the time here where it's like in the UK where it's like, how are you? Fine. You fine. That's it. It's a greeting. But if you say, yeah. right, how's your stress levels? Like, how are you actually feeling? Is there anything open ended question? Is there anything you're struggling with at the moment? Give people the option to open up about something they're struggling with well actually now you mention it and it doesn't have to be every single communication it doesn't have to be before every ask as you as you said right sometimes yeah, it can yeah. be a hey how are you doing yeah fine can you do this for me brilliant yeah job done off we go but but making sure it doesn't have to be every time but making sure regularly you're like so how's everything with you how are you finding the workload how are you getting on with this project is there anything that you need support with are, are there any resources that you're lacking in and actually having a genuine open conversation um, regularly. Yeah, I think that there's pros and cons to the remote thing. And I think that we need to understand that there are, it, it's not all bad. Yeah, for sure. Right, so we work a lot with early stage startups. I want to go back to one thing you, you just mentioned there a little bit ago, and that was about um, how leaders can be stressed out about product launches and things like that. Uh, when you work with people in positions like that, are there ways, I guess, that you advise them to handle the stress that they're dealing with, which is on a, on a bit of a different level, right? They're raising funds or they're trying to grow revenue for their product uh, higher level at, and the team is, is below them and they're trying to build the features that they agreed upon that are on the roadmap, these things. Um, is how do you advise that they sort of buffer that stress and not let the team sort of feel that pressure from the the problems and challenges that they're facing i think that there's there's kind of different ways to look at this and i think that one of them is to understand that at whatever level in the business you are whether you're entry level or you're the founder and ceo is that you're a human being and you have the exact same stress response bar a few maybe genetic differences or a few kind of um environmental conditioning differences over the over the years really we're, we're pretty similar as people um 
regardless of our role in a company and the the kind of the salary that we're on or the level of responsibility we have and that is the difference is the level of responsibility so where we have that same response with that same stress response the same kind of biology uh, and to a degree the same psychology to a point once again there's plenty of individual differences um the the responsibility as you get higher up in the kind of company hierarchy responsibility is it's a big old tap right you're responsible for more stuff the buck stops more with you people can't you you know you've got less places to then pass it on uh pass it on up the chain to and say actually do you know what this is too big for me um i need to speak to my manager oh wait i'm the boss right so there's there there is a difference in that respect i think that it's important to have the humility to understand that that you are a human being the same as everyone else in the company and i think that that can actually give you almost permission to go oh yeah i am actually struggling with this stuff even if you're just admitting it to yourself or to some trusted advisors or to loved ones people you know friends and family members you can turn around to and say i am really finding this a challenge at the moment um and it's okay to do that because you're a human being right and you're allowed to have flaws and you're allowed to find things hard you don't have to have all the answers all the time and being able to accept that and have that humility and and remember that you're just a person um i think can be really really powerful just in itself sometimes realizing that you don't have to have everything perfect can be a huge stress relief in one go one of the biggest taps for me was my perfectionism it both in both instances of burnout was the need to make everything better all the time it wasn't good enough what i was doing was not good enough i could plan a better lesson i could um plan a better pt session i could do more marketing i could get more clients i could improve my own skills as a teacher or as a personal trainer um and that perfectionism is arguably one of the things which led to the burnouts and i know that there's a lot of founders and ceos and business leaders who have a similar issue they 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 feel like they feel like they need to have everything just right because when they log into linkedin or they look at they go to a networking event and people are talking about all their successes because they ain't talking about their failures are they um and so they they see these shiny launches and they go oh wow that's perfect ours needs to be perfect too but because we're so close to our own one we see all the flaws and we think that the the other people the other companies don't have this they do right they do they're just not telling you about it so remembering that your company your product yes it has to be good you yes you have to be good you have to be great even you have to be a great leader your company has to be a great company your product has to be a great product your service has to be a great service but it doesn't have to be a perfect service a perfect product a perfect company a perfect human being because none of those things exist it's all contextual even a perfect product it depends on who's using it it depends on why they're using it how they're using it and what they're using it for so being able to go do you know what perfection is out right that's 80s right we're going into 2024 imperfection is the way forward right imperfection i consider myself to be an imperfectionist perfection used to be a value of mine or at least perfectionism used to be a value of mine whether i knew it or not and i remember doing a talk a couple of years ago and it was during that talk that i realized that imperfection had become a value of mine i was like do you know what done is better than perfect i want to get this stuff out i'm going to make mistakes and do you know what i'm going to learn from every single damn one of them because that's how we learn right 
It's how we learn to walk. We kept falling over and getting up again. Now, business leaders know this from a company perspective because you iterate products. You beta test products, right? You, you get things out there. People use them and say, this doesn't really work that well. And you go, cool, we'll fix it, right? You don't go, oh my God, it's never going to work. Whereas if we get some kind of criticism about ourselves, we're like, oh my God, I'm terrible. I'm a failure. But if we remember that we actually have the ability to learn and grow, we maintain that growth mindset and we go, do you know what? I'm okay to make mistakes. Then I think that that's one of the big things that leaders can do to manage their own stress. The next thing is to um, is to analyze where that stress is coming from. Turn taps off or down where possible. Build in recovery time, off season, pressure valves into your daily routine so that you're constantly keeping that level down. You're not waiting until it's nearly at the top and then going, oh, I'm going to go on a retreat. I'm going to go and do an ayahuasca ceremony um, and that'll fix everything. Won't because you're going to come back to the same shit that you left. Um, What you do is you build it into the daily routine so that you keep the stress levels nice and low. You don't let it get near the top. The same as you would if you were an entry-level developer, right? You're not, you're special because we're all special. But you're not so special that your stress, um, the way you manage stress has to be different. may have to be at a different level because if you're under more stress, then you need to prioritize stress management even more. But the, the, the kind of the, the main stuff is the same regardless. Right on. And let's shift into company culture a little bit. You, you already explained a lot there about, about it. Um, one thing that I see that's kind of common with founders when they set off to be an entrepreneur or start their own startup, they're usually coming from a sort of situation where they've worked in that industry for several years, maybe decades in, in many cases. And when they go to start a startup, they say, I want my company to be radically different than the big company that I spent so many years stressed out in. I don't mm-hmm. want all the corporate bullshit. I don't want all the reports. I don't want the layers of management to slow everything down because we're a startup. We have to move fast. We have to be sort of cool, trendy. I don't know. Uh, things like this. Um, do you notice this and does it sort of does it work out for them is, is my question. So it's tricky it's, because-, because it feels very sort of knee jerk. Like you're building a company culture around things that you don't want mm. instead of things that you do want. I think that, I think that you can build a culture with a focus on what you don't want. I think that you're right that you need to have a focus on what you do want as well. Like, I don't think that you can just do it entirely on what you don't want, but um so if you're kind of like i don't want this i don't want that what do you want flip that around and say okay instead of this we'll have this instead of this we'll have this of course i think that also it's worth understanding that if you've worked in the corporate world for years or decades as you said um you're going to be a product of your experiences you may think that the product of those experiences oh i don't like those things my, like my the the end result is me not liking those things but you also have behaviors and values and stuff which have been conditioned into you through those years and so if you're if you don't want to live those you have to be very self-aware and this isn't you know self-awareness is a skill it's not an inherent trait it's a practice so you can be very self-aware through practice and you can go okay 
what things, what ways of working did I have that I need to be mindful of that if I see them coming into my style of leadership because of the leaders that I've observed over the past 20, 30 years of working in these companies, um, if I start doing those things, we all, you know, we have those moments where we go, oh my goodness, I've become my dad or oh my goodness, I've become my mum. And I said that thing to my kids and I'm like, oh, I said I'd never say that. And then you said it because unconsciously you were conditioned by your upbringing. You were conditioned by the way your parents were. And you may well go, oh, I don't want to be a dad like my dad was a dad, or I don't want to be a mum like my mum was a was, was with us. And there's certain things that I definitely won't be like. Um, great, but unconsciously you are going to do those things. And if you don't want to, you have to catch yourself and then you have to work hard at unpicking that conditioning, unpicking what you've learned and going, okay, it's it's like any habit, it's like biting your nails. You know, if you find yourself biting your nails and you go, oh, I'm biting my nails, I'm going to stop and sit on my hands. And then like after you've done that a few times, you kind of do it earlier on where you've only just started biting your nails and you go, oh, I've just started doing it. No, I'm going to stop. And then you notice as your hand's on your way to your mouth, you're like, oh, I'm going to bite my nails. I'm not going to do that. And then eventually you just stop doing it, right? So you catch yourself earlier and earlier and earlier until it stops being a thing. And it's the same with the, these kind of leadership behaviors. So I think that it's important that when you're building the culture, you are very specific, like you said, don't just go, I don't want it like this. Say, instead of this, we're going to have this. So you've got both the this is what we're avoiding, so everyone knows, and this is what we're working towards, so everyone knows. You're clear and open. This is what we don't want, and this is why we don't want it, and this is what we're going to do instead. And then looking at a micro level, that's your macro level, at a micro level, what specific leadership behaviors did I admire in my line managers over the years, over the decades, in not just the line managers, but the senior leadership and the CEOs and the and the C-suite in general or the directors or whatever. What did I admire about specific people? Oh, I remember this great um, CFO who had this thing and they led with this way and it was really, really cool. Or um, we had this uh, HR director who led in this particular way and they, I really like this about them. So pick specific behaviors or values or ways of leading that you go, I like this and I didn't like this. And then write yourself your own manifesto. So it's not just about, right, this is how the company cu uh, culture is going to be. We're not going to do this, but we're going to do this. But also, this is me. This is what I'm going to do. This is the kind of leader I want to be. And even if you don't believe that you're that kind of leader now, you can create a persona. You can create a character of the leader that you want to become. And then every day you can step into that persona. And every time you act in a way which supports that persona, um, James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits, talks about it as being uh, each of those is like a vote for the person you want to become, right? So you're, you're, you might not believe it right now, but you go, hey, do you know what? I've got this image of the leader I want to be, and I'm going to vote for that person through the actions that I take until I am that character. And it's no longer me practicing it. It's no longer me kind of going, yeah, this is deliberate practice, conscious. It's going to be unconscious in the same way as learning to drive a car. At first, you're like, oh, stick and pedals and wheel and mirrors. And then eventually, you're just like, I, I got in the car and I don't even know how I got here. It's that automatic. So it's just practice. So write yourself the overall company manifesto, but also your own leadership manifesto too. Right on. Yeah, that's great advice. Let's go back to the end of the year and also looking at the broader internet community that we're all a part of. Uh, I'm curious to, to hear your take on resolutions, either for or against something, and how they can be a change or a starting point for changing how we deal with the stressful part, one of those valves or, or uh, taps in our lives. So what do you think about resolutions? 
are they helpful in dealing with uh, stress management? I have been through both of the polarized camps on both sides of the fence on this. I've been massively pro-resolution. I've also been massively anti-resolution because I'm the kind of, you know, I'm the that pendulum swing guy that I um or I used to be that I see in in society as a whole and swinging from one extreme to the other because extremes are sexy, right? Extremes are attractive. Um, and now I sit in the middle, funnily enough, um, <laughs> as I do with the other things, sitting on the fence. Um, I think that for some people, resolutions are wonderful. And I think that for other people, they aren't. And the reason I think that is because most of the time, it's down to what people do and how they do it that is the issue. It's not resolutions. Resolutions are neutral. They're a thing, right? It's about how we do them. And I think that the problem tends to lie there's a couple of things um it's the way that people set them and i've got a whole kind of habit change framework that i use to change my own habits and to coach people through habit change in the past and now that i talk about in in you know trainings webinars workshops and stuff and um what i realized is that the missing pieces for a lot of people number one is they pick other people's resolutions and try and copy them that's the first thing that they do wrong so for example um someone goes hey i'm gonna i'm gonna give up carbs that's my New Year's resolution. Cool. Why? As soon as you ask someone that, they have no idea why they're doing it. Oh, because I want to lose weight. Okay. Well, number one, carbs, like they're not inherently a, a, a thing with your weight, right? Um, low carb might work for some people, might not work for others. Once again, it's contextual, right? It's individual. Um, okay. So really it's because you want to lose weight. Okay. Yeah. Why do you want to lose weight? Uh, I feel like I should. Oh, there's that word again. You feel like you should. Why do you feel like you should? because you spend a lot of time watching Marvel movies where everyone's ripped. Now, I'm just talking about myself here, right? I've been through so many phases. I worked in the fitness industry. I was surrounded by people on steroids, bodybuilders, um, athletes. I came from a background of being a science teacher. I did not fit in. And I felt hugely insecure about my physical appearance. Um, and I love superhero movies. Again, felt super insecure about the way I looked, right? And so most of the time, we're, we're picking our goals. We're picking our New Year's resolutions based on what we think society thinks we should do or what people close to us, um, you know, our, our spouse or our partner or our, our friends, what are they doing? Or maybe we should do the same and we get swept along with it. So that's the first mistake. Only pick things that you actually genuinely want and you understand why you want it. If you were like, I want to get physically fitter so that I can run around and play with my kids more and enjoy... 2024 and go on holidays and run around at the beach and all of this stuff with my with my kids brilliant you know why you're doing it and you want to get physically fitter so you can do that thing much better start right and um, the second mistake that people make is trying to change too many things all at once or trying to change things that are huge so quitting giving up the, these kinds of things i'm never going to drink i'm not going to drink for a whole year no alcohol cool that could be really good for you is it sustainable? Is it something which you know you're going to stick to or is it too much of a change for you? If, you, if you're currently, all of your social engagements revolve around having a few drinks with mates down at the pub, you're going to lose a lot of your social life and that's going to make it very, very difficult. So you've got to understand not only why it is that you want to do what you're doing, but you also need to understand um, that making tiny little incremental changes is going to have a far bigger impact over the course of 2024 than, than trying to change everything all at once. You know, giving up alcohol, never eating a carbohydrate again in your life, um, getting up at 5 a.m. to run five miles every day, uh, throwing your smartphone into the sea and binning off social media and living in a hut in the woods like some kind of hermit. And then, you know, a week into January or two days into January, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm giving up on all of those. So it's keep it simple, keep it small, 
Yes. Oh, the car! I knew there was one. I knew there was one. Great for some people. I hate them. Um, in terms of the stress management thing, to tie that around to stress management, absolutely, 100%. Um, making resolutions can really help with stress management because, again, a lot of these things uh, are related to stress and well-being and health physically and mentally, right? So a lot of the time, if we manage our stress more effectively, we probably will eat more healthily anyway because we're not comfort eating as much and so on and so forth. We'll sleep better and so on and so forth. My recommendation, rather than saying, okay, January 1st, I'm going to change all this stuff, is say... I'm going to change three or four things and then I'm going to change another three or four things on February the 1st and another three or four things on March the 1st. Now, it doesn't have to be the first of every month. If you feel like January the 1st, making New Year's resolutions, seeing all this change in the air and hearing people talking about change, if that is a good um, uh, a good catalyst for you to get started, use it. If it's not a good time for you and you don't want to, and maybe you want to start in the second week of December, like, uh, sorry, second week of January, my birthday's in January, probably not going to start anything major until after I've got my birthday out of the way, maybe my youngest daughter's birthday out of the way on the 21st. So what's going on for you? Change things when you, when is right for you, when you feel the most motivated. Change tiny things and do it regularly throughout the year. If you change four things every month, you've changed, you know, 50 things by this time next year. Right. Yeah. And I guess tying it back to uh, the community aspect, you said not to do things that, that everyone's doing or because other people say you should. But I think um, there is something too. you can sort of find a, 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 a like minded group. You're all suffering at 5 a.m. doing the five mile run together, whether that's in real life or, or online in some sort of uh, running club of some sort. So that can open sort of more connection, more community, uh, new friendships, all those good things. 100%. And, and there's, there's a lot to be said for accountability when it comes to consistent changes in life and being able to stick to things. People who have a gym buddy are way more likely to go to the gym because they feel beholden to that person. They're less likely to quit. In fact, each person is going, if, if both people didn't want to go to their gym class or whatever, neither of them say it to the other person. And so they both end up going and they'll be like, oh, I was going to bail tonight. I'm really glad we came. And they, you were going to bail. I was going to bail. And it's like, if it had just been them on their own, they both would have bailed, right? So there is a lot to be said for that accountability and yes, for that connection piece. My my advice there, and you you touched on it in the way that you phrased that, it's you find those people. You choose what you want to do and then you find the people that are doing the same thing. You don't find the people and then just do what they're doing right so it's it's the order you do those things in and again going back to the 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 idea of how um the internet can be a wonderful thing if you have got a um a, a, a thing that you want to achieve or a change that you want to make and nobody in your immediate circle no one in your family no one in your close group of friends no one at work wants to do that specific thing there is a community for it online because there is a community for everything and you can find that um whether it's on reddit or it's in a facebook group or whatever and you find your tribe and then you can feed off each other and you can get that support you need. But don't go, oh, all my family are doing this, so I'm going to do it. It's the other way around. Choose the goal that is most meaningful to you. Choose what you want to change. How do you want to see your quality of life improve? What do you want to see 2024 mean for you? And then find people who are setting out on the same journey. Um, that's the second part. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree with you on, on, on surrounding yourself with that right with the right people. All right. Well, Jay, this has been an amazing conversation. I think on that note, we can sort of tie things up. A uh, lot of 
great insights over this hour plus we've been talking. So uh, just quick, want to give you a chance to share how people can find and follow more of what you do. Uh, your site, I believe, is jayunwin.com. Is that correct? Yep. Right. And you're most prolific, I think, on LinkedIn. Is there anywhere else that, that people can follow along? I mean, they can. Um, they can find me on uh, on Instagram, for example, at the real Jay Unwin. But all, I mean, most most of the time, you'll just have to put up with me sharing memes in my stories that make very little sense. So I would say that, despite being present on other platforms, I would say LinkedIn is the one where I actually post useful and interesting stuff. Uh, it's the place where I probably my phone um, usage report says that I spend most of my time, I imagine, um, if I was to check it. So I, yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best bet, which is um, quite easy to find Jay Unwin. Um, there's not many of us on there. Yeah. And you do uh, quite regular live events there, right? Is that like yeah. a once a month thing? Once yeah, a, once a month. Two weeks? Um, okay. I, do a, I do what I call a masterclass, which is just kind of my way of putting something out that's that's public facing and free because most of the time the talks and workshops and webinars and stuff I do are, uh, are internal corporate affairs rather than being kind of public event type stuff. So um, I like to do a live stream on LinkedIn once a month, either on my own or with a guest on a certain topic. I've done on financial stress. I've done one on digital well-being. Obviously, we've talked a fair bit about that where I've had guests on who are experts in that. Um, my next, uh, I've got one in, in December. Um, that is on leading through uh, uncertainty. So as we go into 2024, it's going to be a very uncertain year, same as every other year, right? It's always uncertain. We never know what's coming down the line. Um, so that's my December topic. And every month I do a different topic around leadership, stress management, and how to create that culture where we can maintain high performance and good quality of life for all the people uh, that are within our organization. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. This show goes out late in the week, usually on Thursday or Friday. So uh, can you leave our audience with uh, one way that you plan to de-stress over the weekend? And maybe it will give them a new idea. One of my favorite ways to de-stress is live music. Um, I haven't got a gig booked in this weekend, but last weekend I went to see a great band called Decapitated. Nice, happy music. Uh, I'm a big fan of the most grinding, heavy, shouty death metal and, and associate things. I like a lot of other stuff as well, like reggae and jazz and stuff like that as well. But I really, the best stress reliever for me is, is loud, heavy, live, heavy metal. Um, so I would say that whether you can get out and see some live music of whatever your personal preference has, has to be, or even just whack on your favorite album um, or a playlist, which just you feel that kind of stress level dissipating, music is hugely powerful. Live music has the added benefit of um, being connected with a load of people in the room, being out and and that depth of connection you get from sharing that art form. Um, so so I would say music, yeah, get some music on and, and re, uh, rediscover something maybe you haven't listened to for a long time that used to bring you joy earlier in your life and use that and feel that kind of feel that stress start to dissolve away a little bit fantastic idea well thank you again for your time jay it's been enlightening thank you for having me